Please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11. That's page 538 in my Bible. So if that helps you locate this particular passage in your Bible. Let me remind you all as you're locating that passage, page 5 of your worship guide, there is the uh, sermon text, uh, the outline, and some reflection questions and space to take notes or, or doodle, whatever it is to help you stay engaged and attentive to what God is showing us here in this portion of his word this morning. I'm going to invite you to stand now as I read these nine verses of Isaiah 11 for us. Give your full attention to this. This is God's active miraculous, um, supernatural word. This is God speaking to us. God says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eye righteousness. He shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall put his hand on the adder's den. And they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Y'all can have a seat. God, you tell us that everything will fade, it will pass away, the grass will wither, the flower fades. But your word will stand forever. There's lots of things in life that, that return void. We, we want really powerful returns on our investments. We want to know that where we spend our time, where we pour our energy, it'll, it'll return to us in, in ways that are fruitful and productive. But the only guaranteed thing that will not return void is your word. Jesus, you say that we don't live by bread alone. All these worldly resources that you know we need, that you yourself experienced the need for in the flesh. The ultimate thing we really need, though, you say, is the word of God. We live by every word that comes to us from the mouth of God. And so we ask that you would cause us supernaturally right now, uh, perform a miracle in us to be receptive to your word, that we would be impacted by it, and that we, as, as a consequence, would look more like Jesus. We would delight in what Jesus took delight in, and we pray this in his name. Amen. In uh, 2021, in the summertime, Carrie and I had the opportunity to travel out to California, and we particularly got to invisit, uh, enjoy, invisit, enjoy visiting Sequoia National Park. And we had seen pictures of the uh, sequoia trees online before we went, and we, we had heard reports of these gigantic trees. Um, this will sound cliche, but there's a massive difference between seeing a picture of these trees or hearing about them and seeing them for yourself in person. 
Uh, I mean, you have to crane your neck. They just, it looks like they touch the sky, the base of these trees. It's, it's surreal. It's absolutely surreal to see how gigantic these trees are. Uh, I really did have this thought as we drove into the park and we started seeing these ancient, towering, mammoth trees. Um, I thought about that, that scene in Jurassic Park where, where they first see the dinosaurs. You know, these paleontologists, they had, they had studied dinosaurs. They, they had studied fossils and they had thought a lot about dinosaurs. But when they first saw these massive ancient creatures, I mean, it was breathtaking. It, it, it just startled them. It was so manifestly, palpably impressive. And that's, that's the experience when you see these huge sequoia trees. Now, conversely, imagine this. Imagine we had driven into Sequoia National Park, and instead of seeing these manifestly amazing huge trees, uh, what if we had just seen a, a single solitary little stump, like a pine tree, just a stump? <laughs> uh, obviously, that would not be nearly as impressive. In fact, that would be pretty, pretty obviously disappointing. But that's what Isaiah is talking about here. Uh, we, we've been told of this promised Messiah for thousands of years, all throughout Scripture. God has talked about this amazing Messiah, this, this Savior who's going to come into the darkness, and, and he's going to reverse it. He's going to save us. And it just it feels so amazing. And then you get to the prophet Isaiah, and he's talking about that same promise. But the way he's talking about it, the imagery he uses is of this stump. And he says a shoot is going to emerge from that stump, I imagine, sort of a decaying, maybe a rotting stump that doesn't look like it has any life. And then there's this seed of salvation that's going to come from it. And it seems crazy to look at a stump and think, God is at work. But that's what Isaiah is telling us. And so Isaiah is cultivating this, this posture of, of needing to watch Right? Hold vigil for, for the, the messianic promise and to wait even when things feel hopeless, to hope against hope and anticipate that God is going to show up and he's going to show up in a way that perhaps we didn't expect and he's going to be at work in ways that we didn't foresee. And Isaiah's actually been talking about this for some time. Isaiah 11 is not the first time he makes mention of this stump. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is talking about the world and how it's broken and it's dark, and it's like a wasteland, he says. And he says, in that wasteland, there is a stump. It's the first time he mentions it. And he says, the seed of salvation, God's promised salvation, believe it or not, it's in that stump. God's, God's hopeful promise is actually hiding in the midst of the wasteland and in the midst of the darkness. And, you know, this, this passage gets read and thought about at Christmas time, hopefully at other points in the year as well, but at Christmas time, it's very, it's very normal to read this, this prophecy of Isaiah. And so as you reflect on the Christmas story and you think about these themes of the world's darkness and brokenness and how God is, is brewing hope in the midst of that darkness, uh, that's actually a pretty, a pretty present and obvious theme in the Christmas story as well. Think about the darkness and the uncertainty of the Christmas narrative. Uh, it's a story of a teenage mom. Just imagine that. Just your, your teenage girl, you're Mary. You didn't expect to be pregnant. When you're first told, hey, you're going to be with child, she's troubled. 
She's, she's at best confused. It's very disruptive. It's an unsettling thing. And then we know that her fiance is not immediately thrilled with the idea of her being pregnant before their wedding day, and he's not the biological father. And so he, he makes some assumptions like any man would, and there is some tension there in the relationship between Mary and Joseph because he's going he's gonna to break up with her. That's his initial impulse. And then an angel tells Joseph, don't do that. The Holy Spirit is why she's pregnant. And so they stay together. But, but things don't really get a whole lot better. I mean, there doesn't seem to be a ton of family support for Mary and Joseph as newlyweds. Uh, as they go to Bethlehem for this census, this is Joseph's hometown, the town of Bethlehem. You would assume he's got some relatives they could lodge with or some old connections, some friends, but there's nowhere for them to stay. So they're kind of alone. And, and they don't have health insurance, obviously. Jesus is born in basically a barn. He's born amongst livestock. His first bassinet is a feeding trough, right? There's no labor and delivery team. That's stressful. I mean, really imagine it. You're, you're, you're a teenage girl. You're pregnant. No health care. Your baby's born in a barn. And then when he's a toddler, when, when Jesus is a toddler, there is a massive threat against his life. There's a very powerful politician named King Herod who uses all of his resources and all of his manpower to launch a manhunt for your son, Jesus. And, it, and it's such a, a tumultuous, dangerous thing that an angel comes to you and says, you have to flee right now in the middle of the night. You have to leave everything you're familiar with and you have to go to a foreign country where they don't speak your language, you don't know your way around, you don't know the, the customs, and you're going to live there for a number of years as refugees until this whole Herod threat dies down. Really imagine it. That's a lot of uncertainty. That's a lot of, it's a lot of unsettling darkness. And the obvious question when you really imagine Joseph and Mary's situation, the whole Christmas story, the obvious question is, God, what's the deal? Where are you? Are, are you at work in my life? Are you actually invested in my life? God, when are you going to show up? And get to work in my life. Where are you? And God's honest answer is, I'm right here. That's, that, that's God's answer to Mary and Joseph as they wrestle with all of these uncertainties and all of this darkness. I'm, I'm right here. I'm, I'm right here. The fullness of God in the flesh, I'm with you. I'm not here in the way you would have expected. You know, when we think about God showing up, man, God really showed up. God was at work. We think powerful, mighty. But the, the first and most fundamental way God shows up is in this frail, vulnerable child, Emmanuel. And God says, believe it or not, this is me showing up. I know you expected something more defying, but the, the fact is, I am at work in a very objectively impressive way. And I'm here, and I'm fully invested, and I'm at work in, in the, the presence and in the life of this frail, vulnerable child. And this is kind of a soapbox for the prophet Isaiah. He just keeps hammering on this and talking about this. I mentioned chapter 6. Well, he just keeps going in chapters 7, 8, and 9. In, in chapter 7, it says, there are people in great distress. I mean, that, that's all of us in some way, shape, or form. All of us are battling uncertainty and stress, and we're anxious, and we're troubled, and we're weary, and, and we know about darkness, and we know about disappointment, and we understand a little bit about gloom. And Isaiah said, that's, that's the world we live in. But in that darkness, 
God's, God's light's going to pierce that darkness. And, and God's going to give us a miraculous sign. And Isaiah says, you want to know what that sign is? Like, what is the impressive, profound way God will pierce the darkness and provide a sign? And he says, it's going to be a virgin who conceives and bears a frail, vulnerable, weak little baby. That's your sign. And it will be God. God will become weak. God will become human. God will become frail. And you are to receive that as God's potent, objectively impressive sign. That's his answer to all of the, all of the stress and, and trouble and uncertainty you feel on a day-to-day basis. Isaiah chapter 9, it says, There will be no more gloom for those who are in anguish. And you hear that and you think, that sounds amazing. I would love to have no more gloom. I would love to be delivered from my, my anguish. It says, the people who walked in darkness, they will experience a great light. To people who dwell in deep darkness, uh, the light of God will dawn. And you're, you're getting your hopes up. You're excited. What is this light? What is this great light? And then God says, a child. A child will be born. That's, that's God's first and most fundamental answer to all of the anxiety and trouble we feel. And God says, you have, to, you have to embrace that. You have to receive that mystery and savor that mystery and steward that mystery because that is me at work. You're all burning, desperately burning to know the answer to this question. How is God active in my life? Where is God? How is he really at work? And his first answer is in a way you never would have expected. And you didn't expect it because it's, it's weakness, it's frailty. It, it's, it's not immediately solving all of your problems or delivering you from this, this experience of watching and waiting. But God says, believe it or not, this is me. This is Emmanuel, God with you. And again, I think the Christmas story really forces you to imagine this. Because for Joseph and Mary, was it not in fact true that God was with them? Yes, in the, in the most full, manifest way, God was with them as a baby. And God says, that's how I'm at work in your life. That, that's, that's a very normative way I'm at work in the world, in the midst of the darkness. And the Bible talks about people who really do steward this mystery, people who really do uh, take up this posture of holding vigil for, for God and watching and waiting for him. You can see in the Christmas story, there's this old man named Simeon. And this is like his whole life. His whole life is just about watching. And then he sees, one day he's in the temple and he sees this little baby. And the Holy Spirit enabled him to see something that honestly hardly anybody else had eyes to see. And he knew that's God. And if you were standing near Simeon, you would have seen him get excited. And you'd have said, Simeon, what's up? What do you, what do you see? Why are you so excited? And he would say, you see that little baby? That little eight-day-old baby? Yeah, it's like any other eight-day-old baby, you know. They're not even really cute yet at eight-day-old. You know, we, we pretend that they're all cute. But they don't really ripen up until they're like one years old. So, yeah, we see the little baby, you know, still sort of shriveled, weak, frail. I mean, what can a baby do? They, they poop their pants and sleep, that's all, and they eat, that's all they do. It's not very impressive. And Simeon would have said, no, 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 that's God. There was another lady there, Anna, an elderly woman. She would have said, yes, that's true. Simeon's right. That's God. And they would have been watching and waiting and celebrating the arrival of God. Uh, we know that there are these far eastern 
sort of magic men, these astrologers, these like sorcerers from the Far East, travel a great distance at, at great risk to their lives, right? All this expense and all this inconvenience to go and not just see this, this peasant toddler, but I mean, to, to worship him. It says they, their joy is exceeding, it's, it's abounding, and they, they fall down, they bow to this child, they worship him. And if you, were, if you were there when they did that, you might say, what are you doing? This is a low-income family. That's a peasant toddler, right? I mean, she's from Nazareth. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. There's nothing impressive happening here. And these astrologers would have said, no, 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 you don't understand. There's something amazing happening here. It's like that scene in Buddy the Elf, right? It sounds like a crappy cup of coffee. No, it's the world's best cup of coffee, right? That's how these people are acting. Simeon, Anna, the, the wise men, they see something that nobody else sees. Everybody else in the world says, this is nothing. This is nothing to get excited about. None of the Pharisees, King Herod, none of the big important people in society saw this. But these elderly people, Simeon and Anna, and these weirdos from the Far East, they saw it. And then God provoked other people to see it, to become intensely impressed. Like Elizabeth, we saw her last week. This, this woman who is, is with child, with, with Jesus' relative, you know, uh, John the Baptist. John in the womb and Elizabeth, they are celebrants. They are intensely impressed with Jesus. Some, some marginalized outcast people like shepherds, God brings them in on the loop. He, sa he says, look, there are people who will get really enamored with how I'm actually at work. But something that really jumps out about all these people is that they're not really impressive by the world's standards. They're really not. I mean, Elizabeth's not impressive. Simeon, Anna. I mean, even the wise men, they perhaps were impressive in their own culture, but they're not impressive in the Israelite culture. Let me prove it to you. Who is the most famous, prolific sumo wrestler in the world right now? Go ahead, shout his name out. Oh, right? Because we're Americans. We, we know Michael Jordan or LeBron James, or Wayne Gretzky or, or Messi or Tom Brady. We know those names. But, but see, even when God pulls in people who might be sort of impressive in their culture, they're weird to the Israelite culture. And that's how God works. This is actually the primary pattern in Scripture. The prophet Isaiah will sum it up later in this book, Isaiah 55, is just saying, look, categorically, God's ways are not your ways. The way he works, where he really shows up, it's, it's not going to be something that you would predict. And certainly, popular culture would not foresee how God is most dynamically and impressively at work. And that's not the exception to the rule. The rule is that God is at work in really odd peculiar and sort of weak ways. Isaiah chapter 11, it talks about how this is the primary pattern by saying a shoot from the stump of Jesse is what we're paying attention to. It's, it's not just a stump. He says it's the stump of Jesse. And that's a reference to David. David is the son of Jesse. And he goes on to say the spirit of the Lord rests on this stump. And so it's, it's the work of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might and the fear of the Lord. Now, we need to pause here and we need to evaluate something about ourselves. When we hear about the work of wisdom and might and knowledge and understanding, we need to admit that we all have assumptions about what we think that will look like. So really, do this right now. Think, okay, work that I think of as wise and mighty, 
and knowledgeable. You know, what, what's a picture? What's an illustration of that? We all have assumptions. Now we have to take those assumptions and we have to check them against what God actually shows us and emphasizes for us in Scripture. And I'm not match what the Bible emphasizes. So where is God really at work in the days of the son of Jesse, King David? Where is the spirit of wisdom and might truly active in the days of David? Well, if you imagine going back to the days of David and you're just sort of a, a, an average citizen in the Israelite community, your answer to this question is Saul. Saul is where God is at work. We want a king. We, are, we crave a king just like all the other nations have a king. We want to be popular. We want to be cool. We want to follow what's trendy. That's, that's in all of us. We, we all want to just play the popularity contest. That's what the Israelites are doing. And then lo and behold, here comes Saul. And he's tall. He looks regal. He, he just exudes what we think of when we hear the word king. And, you know, he's still on the throne. David has been anointed king, but nobody really knows that except for David and Samuel and a handful of other people. If you're just an average citizen, you think Saul's still on the throne. He looks like a king. He's impressive. So you'd say that is where God is at work. That is where God is really showing up in our era. And God would say, if that's your answer, you would be wrong. Same is true of the days of Jesus, the son of David, right? The fulfillment of all the promises and prophecies of David. Uh, who would the Israelite community say is the, the fulfillment of God's promises of counsel and might in the days of Jesus? Well, well, who's the king of the Jews in the days of Jesus? It's Herod. Herod. And, and Herod, you have to keep in mind, I mean, he built this big temple complex for the Israelite community. So he wasn't just a powerful, kingly figure, but he was a religious figure. I mean, he built the big church building, right? I mean, he was the one who, who made it possible for us to have this, like, this religious campus where we gather to do our religious activities. And so the question of where is God at work, you'd say, well, it's obviously Herod. It's in Jerusalem. It's in the, the work of the temple. Lo and behold, though, the Bible says, no. Where is God? Where is he really at work? He's in Nazareth. You know the slogan of Nazareth. We've talked about this before. The slogan, the tagline for Nazareth is, nothing good comes from here. <laughs> and just let this resonate. For 30 years, that's where God lived. That's his hometown. Like all throughout church history, you know, one of the really fundamental ways to reference Jesus, God in the flesh, was Jesus of Nazareth. Y'all, Nazareth is a place that no, none of us, no one in this room would want to go to Nazareth. It's not a trendy, happening place to be. <laughs> Nothing good happens there. They don't have any cool microbreweries. They don't have any shopping malls. They don't have any cool stuff. It, it's Ichabod. The glory has departed. I don't know if there was ever any glory in this place. Nothing good happens there. And for three decades, that is where God lives. And we don't really know a whole lot about what he's doing there. It's kind of obscure. But that's where he's working. The light coming into the darkness in real time on the planet Earth for 30 years. That's where the light was, was living. So we need to confess this about ourselves. If, if we're reflecting on the, the stump of Jesse, the, the work of God in the days of David, a lot of us are just oblivious. 
We're, we're oblivious to where God's really at work. Um, and, and again, this is, this is the primary pattern in Scripture. I mean, you could go back to some of David's predecessors, like his great-grandmother, Ruth. Who, who, who was God really using in the days of, of Ruth? Well, the, the, the average citizen would not have thought of Ruth. I mean, she was a Moabitess. She wasn't an Israelite. She was an immigrant. She was a field worker. She wasn't even like a, a first-tier field worker. She was picking up scraps from, from the first-tier field workers. Right? She came into Bethlehem with this kind of cranky woman named Naomi who wouldn't even let you call her Naomi. She would say, no, don't even call me Naomi. Call me Mara because she was just so bitter and cranky. Not, not a whole lot of impressive thematic stuff happening there on the surface. But God says, that's where I'm at work. How do we get to the days of David? Well, we get there through this immigrant field worker who is the daughter-in-law of this cranky, bitter woman named Mara. That's how we get to the stump of Jesse. So the question is, do you really want to be where God is at work? So, so where was God at work in the days of the stump of Jesse, the days of King David? Well, I would invite you later today to go read 1 Samuel chapter 22. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. 1 Samuel chapter 22. And I'm actually going to have you read chapter 22 and chapter 23. Later today, not right now. And what you'll see is that God was most primarily at work in the stump of Jesse, the days of David, in the wilderness. Not in the capital city, but in the wilderness, in this cave called Adullam. And you'll see that the community that rallied to that wilderness location in that cave, it was all these down and out people, these distressed people, people who were in debt. And so Really think about what it would be like to be a member of that community. It's not a community where you sort of dress up and you put your best face forward and you perform for everybody and, and you, know, you, just, you keep up all of the pretentious stuff that we tend to do in society. I mean, this is a place where you, you bring your real self. And, and when you meet people, you say, yeah, I'm kind of down and out. I'm in debt. You know, there, there are these things about me that I'm ashamed of, but I'm not going to try to conceal those things. I'm going to actually kind of just lead with those things and tell you who I really am. So it's a community where, where there's no pretense, but you're bringing your real self. And then what we know from David's life, specifically his Psalms, is that it's a community where you don't just sort of study the word of God in sort of a, a controlled, sort of prestigious academic way where you feel like really smart about what you're reading in the Bible and there's brilliant insights from, from you know, theologian, theologians who wear suits with elbow patches. That's not the environment. You're out in the wilderness and David is leading you through Bible studies where you're wrestling through the word. Read, read some of David's Psalms. These are not sort of academic, intellectual, emphasized Bible studies. These are emotional, very sort of kind of disturbing Bible studies, where you're wrestling with what God is showing you in Scripture, and you're, you're, you're saying, here's how I feel, and you're prayerfully fighting in this relationship with God, and that's how God's going to generate fruitfulness in this relationship that he wants to develop with you. It really begs the question, where, where do we invest our attention and our energy nowadays? You know, where do we, where do we tend to, to fixate? Well, to, to name an obvious one, um, in some ways, because you can't escape it, because we all have phones and we all follow some news feed. I mean, we're all at least fairly well fixated on Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. We know. 
We know what, what's going on. I mean, it, there's a Chiefs game. It's, it's Tay-Tay there, and they're going to show her in the, in the suite. And then where are they going to go to eat after the game? And she's wearing a bracelet with his name on it. And it's just all this stuff, right? And, and you know what God would say? He'd say, that's fine. That's fine. You know, all relationships have to start somewhere. They're in the sort of puppy love, honeymoon phase, whatever. But, but you know what God would say? He'd say, you, if you want to know where I'm really at work, where I'm really cultivating um, really impressive stuff, stuff that wouldn't strike you as impressive. The tabloids won't talk about this stuff, but where I'm really doing good stuff, go to a, a married couple who's been married 30 years. And, and they just, they're not great at communicating because they've, they've gotten a lot of bad habits over the years. And they, you know, it's tense. They're both sort of on edge. And, you know, one member of the marriage says something and the other one gets a little defensive. Like, what's that supposed to mean? And, and they just, it's, it's awkward. Uh, but they stay married. And maybe they go to counseling. They fight through some of that. They fight the good fight. And, and they just keep, they keep, you know, trying to put in relational deposits even though they're, they're not great at it. And they just, they just keep striving to steward this mystery of these two becoming one and, and the gift of marriage. God would say, that's where I'm really at work. That's where I'm cultivating the, the real good stuff of the gospel. And again, it's, it's not going to be the kind of stuff that you see in headlines. But that's where I am truly doing amazing work. And, and you know, we hear stuff like that and we think, I don't want to do that. I don't want to think uh, uh, like that or, or, or commit to that being where God is at work because it feels so weak. I mean, that's going to put me in positions of feeling weak and vulnerable. It's going to feel risky to me. And, you know, that's how it felt for David. The, the stump of Jesse. Where, where was God really at work in David's life? Well, he was at work in his weakness. Guys, guys David felt phenomenally weak out there in the wilderness. His, his life was constantly in danger he, he didn't know, like, what are we doing tomorrow precisely? He, he just had to trust God and lean on God, not on his own understanding. It, it wasn't this predictable, comfortable, convenient life that we all sort of naturally dream about. And God says, believe it or not, that's where I'm at work. In scenarios where you cannot lean on your own understanding. And you have to look to me and you have to live by faith in me. It's actually marvelous when you read about David's life. Here, the prophet Isaiah says, the work that God's doing in David's life, David's not just hiding out in the cave and processing his emotions. He's, he's really doing good kingdom work. It says the kind of work that the, the, the king David will do is he will judge not by what his eyes see, but he will judge with righteousness. He will, he will pursue justice for the poor and the meek. He will punish the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness will be the belt of his loins. So if you later today read 1 Samuel 23, you'll see that David, he goes by, by enemies, by Philistines. And at great risk to himself and his, and his very small number of troops, they go and they fight the Philistines to save the meek and to provide justice for the poor. And in doing this, David knows that he's not just taking the risks of war into account. He's going to give away his position. Word's going to trickle back to Saul, and Saul's going to come looking for him in the, the territory of Keilah. And then the people of Keilah, instead of being grateful to David, they betray him, and they tell Saul where David's hiding. And you read all of that, and you think, oh, gosh, that just sounds so gut-wrenchingly weak. It sounds so exposed and vulnerable. It sounds like suffering, and everything in my flesh wants to avoid that. And yet God says, if you want 
to be involved in what I'm doing. If you want to experience me and you want to be where I am and you want to know something of where I'm at work, that's where I'm leading you. That's the primary pattern in Scripture. God says, it's not just that I'll preserve you in that dynamic. I will actually perfect my power. That's where God will perfect his power. That's what he says. Hebrews chapter 2 says this. I love how realistic this is. It says, everything is under the, uh, under the subjection of Jesus. Okay, so that's a fact. But then it says, but admittedly, at present, we don't see everything in subjection to Jesus. So, so if everything is under the subjection of Jesus right now, you're going to have to believe that by faith because by all appearances, it doesn't seem that way. And that's what the author of Hebrews says. And then he says, what we have to focus on, what you are invited by the Holy Spirit all throughout scripture to behold and to fixate on is the suffering of Jesus. Because believe it or not, it says this, it says, Jesus, the son of God, you want to know how he was made perfect? It's a mystery that we're even talking like that. Like, what, do we, what do you mean how he was made perfect? He's already perfect. He's God, which is true. And yet the Hebrew authors, uh, the author of Hebrews says, he was made perfect through suffering. That's how he was made perfect. And that's why we're going to come to this table in a minute and we're going to feast on this fact. If, if that's true, you can't just know about that. God says you have to get that inside of you. You have to feast on it. You have, to, you have to make this your fixation. You have to look to the, the way you fixate on your phone, whatever it is you're scrolling and looking at. Make Jesus the thing you incessantly look at. He is the author and perfecter of your faith. And what you're enamored with and obsessed with is that for the joy set before him, he did this. He laid down his life for you. His body broke. His blood was shed. And believe it or not, that is how God perfects his power. Where is God most at work in the history of the world? Where is it? It's in this. No one sees this coming. No one sees this coming. Even when Jesus told his apostles about this ad nauseum, they still didn't catch it. They still could not wrap their minds around how this could be the fulfillment of God at work. And yet it is. God says, this is where I perfect my, my power. You have to see it. Every day, you have to savor it. You have to relish it. And this meal comes with a warning. The Bible says you have to discern what you're participating in if you come to this meal. You have to examine yourself. And one primary way to examine yourself is to ask yourself this question. Do, do I honestly want to be where Jesus is at work? I can say that. I can express a sentiment of, yeah, I want God in my life. I want to be where he's at work. Okay, but let's get specific. Again, for the first 30 years of his life on planet Earth, where was he at work? Nazareth. Nothing good ever happens there. Do you want to be? Do you want to be where he is? I, I know all of you in this room, or at least the majority of you would say, I want to be a Christian. I want to be on fire for Jesus. I want to be with God. Okay. Well, we don't have to guess at where he is. When he takes on flesh and he lives on this earth, where is he? And chances are good he's in a place where you don't want to be. For some of you, that's, that's a real difficult marriage. You don't want to be in your marriage. 
right? That sounds harsh, but that's true. You, I, don't, I don't know. Marriage has gotten really hard. Okay. Well, where is God? What God has joined together, let not, let not man put asunder. Right? You, some of you are having a hard time being a parent right now. It's, parenting's hard. The Bible says, you, okay, so you want to know where God's at work? Right? There's, there's a proportionality here. Where do I feel most weak and frail and not in control? God says, that's where I'm at work. Where is God at work? Well, he's at work with sinners. I don't want to be around sinners. Right? I hear this all the time. You know, the church is full of all these hypocrites and sinners. To which I say, yeah. That's what every page of scripture says that. What did, you, did you think it was a country club? Did you think we're just going to all show up and be pretentious and, and pretend to just be this loving, you know, super pious religious environment? No, it's a hospital. Like, you don't qualify for church membership unless you're sick and sinful. Right? God didn't come to save like righteous people who are pious and good. He came to save sinners. And if you follow him, you're not just going to be around sinners. God says you're going to put the emphasis on serving them. Ew. I don't want to serve. I want, I want you to think I'm a servant, but I don't, I don't want to actually serve, right? I mean, even like picking up trash. No, like we, we should hire someone to do that. I, do, I don't want to serve. Ser, service, that's lowly, it's dirty. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't make me feel elite or competent or impressive. If I had servants, I'd feel that way. And God says, well, I'm the king and I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. Well, to what extent? Jesus, how much service are we talking about here? And Jesus says, oh, big time service. I'm going to lay down my life for my enemies. I'm going to lay down my life for people who, who don't really love me back. That's where, that's where I'm at work. That's where I'm leading y'all. And so when you come to this table, you have to ask, do I want that? I mean, that's what this, this meal is inviting you to do, to follow Jesus, to, to join him in, in his way. And to get in on what he emphasizes. And so you've got to ask yourself, do I really want to take that and receive that and have that affect me and, and become like the predominant way I live my life? God says, if you don't want it, then, then don't partake of the meal. You, you would be eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. You'd be making your life a whole lot harder if you don't really want this. But if you do have an appetite for it, God says, not only should you receive it, but you should get really, really excited about it because he's serious when he says, I'm cultivating real power here. That's the last portion of this passage we read this morning. Uh, it says that surreal power, like peace that transcends understanding, is going to be the result of you receiving the promises of God. The anomalous promises of God. Look at how it describes it. It says, what God actually cultivates... If you follow this king, it's this kingdom where the wolf and the lamb lie down together in peace. The leopard and the, the goat, the cow and the lion. A nursing child could pick up a cobra like a stuffed animal. That's how it describes the power and the profound peace that actually results from this king's accomplishments. So you don't just reluctantly partake of the, of the servant king's sacrifice. You joyfully partake of it. You say, I want that. I want more of an appetite for Jesus. I want to I want to be more delighted in the things he took delight in, and I want to steward the mysteries of this promise of such a profound peace. Because through this, 
through this suffering, this death and resurrection of our king, the power, the peace, the knowledge of God will fill the earth. That's what this passage says. Like the waters cover the sea. That's how full this prevailing knowledge of God's power, his paradoxical power will fill the earth. Let's pray and ask God to give us faith to receive that. Jesus, we thank you for being so prophetic with us. We have a whole section of the Bible just called the prophets. And if we actually take time to read it, it pierces us. It, it does not cater to our cravings for convenience or comfort or immediate gratification. And we want to admit that. And we also want to tell you thank you because you call yourself the, the good physician. And that means you're going you're gonna to surgically cut in and you're going to make adjustments not to harm us. It will hurt, but to... But to heal us and to conform us more and more into the image of the joyful, life-giving King, Jesus. And we ask God that you would cultivate in us always uh, an ever-growing appetite for Jesus and for his ways. And we pray this in his name. Amen.